0: Good morning to you. Spring has sprung. Time to break out the bow ties, baby. <laughs> Springtime. Um, for those of you who, uh, who don't know, my name is Lucas. I'm the lead pastor here. I moved here uh, two and a half, almost three years ago now. September will be three years for us from Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Scottsdale, Arizona is where it actually gets hot. Uh, not like here where people say it's hot out and it's n- not hot. In uh, Scottsdale, gets to like 50 but you guys have really got me messed up now. Canadians have got me, have got me messed up because on Friday, uh, I went out for a run and I came home and Kaya uh, had just gotten up from a nap and I got her up and we went outside. My wife and, and Kaya and I were on the back patio at our house and uh, a little protein shake and just kind of hanging out. And I was like, man, it is, it's hot out here. Like it's, it's warm and, and I took my shirt off. I was like, I'm gonna get a little sun like, just get a little sun on my shoulders, I, I, I've got that winter color going, so I'm trying to, trying to get a little sun, and, uh, and my wife said, man, you are so messed up, and I said, why? And she goes, because it's 13 degrees outside, and I think it's downright balmy, you know? Like in Scottsdale, at 13, your shirt does not come off, your fireplace goes on, that's how that works, but, uh, but yeah, I am, I am as Canadian as they come, eh? Um... So anyway, um, I want to talk to you about a couple things before we get into the word uh, this morning, which is what we're here to do, of course. Uh, but I want to talk to you about a couple things that are really exciting that are going on in our church and some stuff uh, that's even happened over the course of the last week. and And what you're going to want to do, I, I think, is is applaud uh, in a number of kind of you know, moments as we kind of walk through this stuff together. But what we're going to do is we're going to save our applause for the end, okay? And we're just going to talk about some of the really great things that God is doing here at Bayview as we seek to accomplish our mission, which is to glorify God, foster community, and make disciples. We want to make much of Jesus, make God famous, put his name in lights, We want to foster community here at our church and around the GTA and in the neighborhoods that we're in, and we want to make disciples, people who look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, smell like Jesus, think like Jesus, glorify God, foster community, and make disciples. And here's what's going on in our church as we uh, pursue that mission. The first thing is attendance. Uh, A couple of years ago in 2012, we would have had roughly 500, a little bit less, uh, 500 adults in in worship on Sunday. Last Sunday, we had 1,040 uh, just really our attendance has gone through the roof. And and, and th- what that means is that there's more people hearing about Jesus, more people getting their lives restored and redeemed, more marriages getting healed, m- more people that are hearing the message of the gospel. In fact, uh, in, in 2012 on a Sunday, we typically would have had between 25 and 30 kids in, in Bayview Kids Ministry. Uh, last Sunday, we had 72 in the first service. Like, that's... Three times what we would have had four years ago, and that's just in, that's just in the first service. That didn't even include second service numbers. Uh, that means a couple of things. Uh, balcony people, we are breaking fire code every time we put extra chairs up there. You guys understand that? Did you put extra chairs out this morning? No, we didn't need to do that. We did last week, though, didn't we? Those of you who are here, yeah, nod and yeah, you're with me. So I need you to sit down here in the front row. I know that's a little bit of the splash zone uh, for the spit from the pastor up here and all that stuff. I get that, uh, but we're just trying to be safe and all that stuff. So uh, when, when, we're, when we're having to put extra chairs out, come down here right now. You're, you're fine. Now, the other thing that means is we're, we're targeting uh, uh, September likely or the fall at some point to launch a Sunday evening service. And we talked about that a few years ago at a congregational forum, and it just will help catalyze our growth and it will help accommodate our growth because God is just doing great things as we're growing as a church. In fact, uh, ESL program, how many of you are in, e- in our ESL program? Anybody? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, very cool, very cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Um. I can't even find a parking spot here on Monday and Thursday because ESL is just busting at the seams, and the, the the attendance and the registration is higher than it's than it's ever been. We're just thrilled as to what God is doing in terms of Sunday attendance. Uh, Dave mentioned this a few minutes ago, but Youth Alpha. Launched this week. For those of you who don't know, Alpha is an opportunity for, uh, in this case, youth, but anybody to come and explore questions about faith and God and spirituality. So it's not designed for Christians, it's designed for people who are just investigating things of faith. And so typically, we would have about 25 to 30 youth on Wednesday night during our youth program, and not all of our regulars showed up this Wednesday for Youth Alpha, and we still had 47 people. 47 young people. So what that means, if you're doing the math, is more than half of the folks that showed up on Wednesday night don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, don't have a church home, don't have a church background, and they came to explore things of faith. In fact, uh, Dave Lewis told me this. And on Wednesday, he and Janelle, uh, his wife, were sitting, and Janelle told Dave, just listen. Just stop and listen for a minute. Dave said, what am I listening for? And she said, you hear all that conversation that's happening around you? That's young people who know Jesus personally, talking with other young people who don't know Jesus personally and sharing Jesus with them in the context of conversation. In fact, we had a couple of young people, uh, youth walk away from that thing going, I mean, I thought church was lame before this. This was actually pretty cool. I, I think I like this God thing. I think I like this Jesus thing. It was probably the poutine, but still, still it's a win. It's a win for, for us and for Jesus. Um, Christmas Eve, some of you remember this, that we gave uh, a special offering. We were targeting, uh, collecting about $15,000 on Christmas Eve. We collected almost $30,000 on Christmas Eve, about twice what our goal was, to give to three different ministries. One was Toronto City Mission, one was Safe Families, and the last was to a Syrian refugee project. Our hope was to relocate a refugee family from Syria and help them resettle here in Toronto. Uh, That family landed this week. Uh, They're in their apartment. They're getting settled in. We're getting clothes for them, all that good kind of stuff. And, and just uh, coming alongside them and sharing Jesus with them and bringing hope and healing and restoration. Uh, imagine if you lost five siblings in, in a civil war. That's kind of what happened with uh, this individual, uh, two um, mom and dad and, and four children. So uh, we're working alongside them and, and helping them. I actually got a chance to meet them this week. It was the highlight of my week. And Huri was nice enough to translate into Arabic for me. So again. It could have been anything for all I know. I, I didn't speak the language. so. But it was great. It was great to meet them. Uh, the other thing that's going on here is life groups. Life groups. These are small groups of people. And the goal of life groups is to bring life to one another and bring life to our community. Bring life to one another and bring life to our community. Come together and, and speak life into one another, love one another, forgive one another, serve one another, and bring life to our community. So, some of our life groups have actually even chosen this as their, as their project for bringing life to our community. It doesn't have to be this, there's all kinds of different things that they're doing. But our goal was kind of you know, we were hoping like eight to 10 life groups was kind of that would be great. And, and Dave would have got like the stamp of good job, Dave, if, if he would have launched between eight and 10. And then we launched 25. Life groups, so people that are just bringing life to one another and bringing life to the community. If you're not in a life group, you're going to have an opportunity to do that because of the next weeks and months, we're going to be launching more and more life groups, putting more of our time, effort, energy, and resources into life groups because we're thrilled about what God is doing in life groups. And finally, and this is a great thing as well, after about 24 months, our worship pastor search has come to an end. We actually extended uh, an invitation to a young man to uh, step into a leadership as our worship pastor for this next season of ministry at Bayview Glen, and he graciously accepted and is thrilled about it. Some of you may remember him. He came and led worship here a couple of months ago. His name is Andy Cherry. You remember when Andy was here? Uh, sang a song called Nothing to Fear that um, that he wrote and, and and just did a great job in worship that Sunday. And, and before I have a mutiny on my hands, let me tell you what's happening with my Melissa. Because do you not love Melissa? Yeah. Okay. No, wait. See, I told you You have to clap at the end. I told you when I started, you have to clap at the end for the love. Follow instructions. All right. So here's the thing. We absolutely love Melissa. You, you do. I do. In fact, I, I told the first service this, that one time I had somebody come up to me after the service and say, gosh, you are so good. I get preaching. You're just so good. It's like, oh, thanks. That's so sweet, so encouraging. And, and then she goes, But that Melissa, she's great. I'm like, oh, what, was it? what was that? Just got to set me up? What, what was that? And I, I agree. She is absolutely great. Melissa actually started on staff here about two years ago, she started part time. And then she moved into a full-time contract role for a year. And then after that year, she scaled back to part-time because she is heading up and launching the music program over at Tyndale University. So her 15 hours a week for the last uh, number of months here has gone to leading worship twice a month and also developing our choirs that we love so much, gospel choir, mass choir, ensembles, and those kinds of things. So as Andy transitions on to staff, what it's going to allow Melissa to do is continue to work part-time, just as we kind of targeted from the beginning, but move more into her niche and, and really maximize her skills and gifts and experience and continue to lead, continue to work with the choir. And so Melissa's not going anywhere. Don't panic, okay? Andy and his wife, uh, Michelle, our hope is to do an installation service for them on May 22nd. That's the target. Hopefully everything goes well. Uh, they currently live in washington dc he is american just like i am don't hold it against him but he feels uh, real good about the fact that trump might get elected and just move to canada so it makes it <laughs> makes it real easy on on andy i i know i shouldn't joke about that but but uh you'll forgive me um at least i hope so um it's interesting because Andy had opportunities to work at very, very large churches. I mean, in, in the past, actually, he's worked at churches as the worship pastor of over 10,000 people. And I said, Andy, that's not really us, bud, I mean, at least not right now. And we, we're praying that God continues to use us to be a blessing to the GTA. But, you know, large churches have some resources that, that uh, you know, real large megachurches have, have resources that we don't have and cultures that we don't have and things. And he said, you know, Luke, that's not what I'm interested in here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in an urban environment and a very multi-ethnic environment. And I said, well, urban and multi-ethnic, we can do that, you know? And he said, most importantly, I'm interested in where God would have me. And so uh, he came here uh, the first time to lead worship and then the second time to kind of spend some time with elders and staff and search team and whatever else. And, you know, he, he did the same thing that I did. He fell in love with, with you, with us. He looked around and said, what God is doing here is just unbelievable. I've got to be a part of this. And so we'll be excited to bring Andy on staff. He's got an album out. You can actually Google Andy Cherry, and there's YouTube videos and all that stuff if you want to listen to some of his music. His wife, Michelle, is a very, very smart and a ton of fun to be around. And they have no children, but they do have a dog named Piper, which... Um, maybe named after John Piper, probably not, but whatever. Um, and, and Andy's gonna be coming on staff here towards the end of May. Uh, you can continue to pray for us as we search for a family pastor. Ben Wilson and a group of folks are kind of heading up that search. As we just continue to grow as a, as a church, uh, we're gonna need more and more pastoral staff. But, but one of the searches that, that uh, we've conducted, and, and we just feel as an elder team, as a pastoral team, as a search team, everybody unanimously saying, man this is absolutely god's man for this role and we are thrilled beyond belief to to be welcoming andy on our pastoral staff at the end of may so take a look at that that's just this week that's just this week all kinds of great stuff going take a look at that it was amazing what, what just happened there um all kinds of great stuff going on at bayview Glen. god has been so good to us hasn't he Amen. Now we can clap. Thank you. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for all that you've done here at our church. Thanks for bringing Andy to us. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to uh, come alongside him. We actually even lift him up and Michelle, even now, as they uh, begin to kind of pack up their things and, and move here. Um, and, and, and step into a ministry role. We're just so grateful for the way our staff and volunteers, Melissa and others, have cared for us and, and, and led us kind of in the meantime. And we just are so grateful and look forward to the next season of ministry in terms of our worship and arts uh, here at Bayview. Thanks for that uh, family of Syrian refugees, the way that we were able to come alongside and bless them and, and help them relocate. God, thanks for the growth we've experienced in our church, both adults and children, for Youth Alpha. Pray for those who came to Youth Alpha this week that don't know you, that uh, you would draw them to you as they ask their questions about faith. For the students in our community that do know you that are engaged in Alpha, that they would just find your grace is sufficient for them as they reach out to their friends. For our ESL ministry, for our life groups, God, for so many things that are going on here, we are so, so grateful. God, open our eyes now, open our ears uh, to what you have to say from your word. God, it it is uh, most definitely my sense, and it has been all morning, that there might be somebody here today that um, maybe still feels bound, um, still feels trapped, still feels like they're in chains, and our prayer today, uh, oh Jesus, is that you would fulfill your promise uh, when you read from the scroll in Isaiah that you would set captives free today that you would be in our midst, and that you would lose chains. Open our eyes now, in Christ's name, the people of God, together said, amen. All right, I I have a riddle for you this morning to start. You ready? Here's the riddle. Everyone has one. It's behind you. It usually ain't pretty, and very few of us are proud of ours. It's behind you. Everyone has one. It usually isn't pretty, and very few of us are proud of ours. What is it? It's a past. For those of you who thought it was something else, get your mind out of the gutter. It is church. It is church. All right? Everyone has one. It is behind you. It usually isn't pretty, and very few of us are proud of ours. I'll prove it to you. Think about what you've worn in the past. For some of you, you wore leisure suits and polyester. Remember those collars that were like, big enough to land a helicopter on you remember that you look back at your past that ain't pretty how about the way your hair was cut in the past not always proud of that are you I had a mullet by the way until I graduated high school and when I was in high school mullets were not cool Al number one and I didn't play hockey so I should not have had a mullet but I did in the past think about the music you listened to in the past what, what about some harder stuff? What about who you dated in the past? What about what you smoked in the past? What about how you treated people in the past? What you did in the past, what you said in the past, how you thought in the past? Everyone has a past. It, it is behind you. It's usually not pretty, and very few of us are proud of ours. And when we think about our past, we kind of employ different tactics to, to deal with our past, don't we? We, we start. We, some, some of us run from our past. Maybe you took a different job or you stopped going to that gym you used to go to or that restaurant you used to go to. Maybe you take a different route home from work. I've known people that have actually relocated. They've moved in order to run from their past. Maybe you didn't physically run from your past, but mentally you run from it. Maybe it's all just a mental game running from your past. Sometimes we avoid our past, don't we? We're like a bullfighter when it comes to our past. Olay, you know. We duck and dodge and jive. Uh, I saw an interview one time with an actor named Russell Brand. Some of you know who Russell Brand is. His, his drug use has been well documented. He has 12 drug-related arrests. He was a heroin addict. He was an absolute, complete mess. And David Letterman asked him one time about his past. And Russell Brand says, and, and I quote, I, I engaged in general hijinks and youthful folly. <laughs> I'm not sure I would call heroin addiction and 12 drug-related arrests general hijinks and youthful folly, would you? It's just an effort to avoid his past. You know, I hear folks talk about this when it comes to marriage and divorce. They, They say, you know, it didn't work out, or we had problems, instead of saying, you know what, I was unfaithful and I was a jerk. That's why our marriage dissolved. And I'm not saying you gotta air your dirty laundry with everybody. All I'm saying is that trying to avoid Your past is not a great tactic for dealing with your past. Some of us try to rewrite our past and revise our past, don't we? Try to rewrite history. So maybe the past you're not proud of is the way you parented your children. And so now as they're grown, you spend more time with them and you buy them stuff. You do activities with them. Maybe you were kind of a total reprobate, totally immoral in the past. And so now you're trying to revise your past by being really virtuous. Maybe you were an addict once, so now you're trying to revise your past by sponsoring others in rehab programs. Maybe your marriage dissolved, and now you're trying to re- revise your past in the way you date or the way you treat your ex or even in your new marriage. And listen, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad things. You know, being virtuous or you know, sponsoring people in rehab programs or treating your spouse or treating your ex really, really well. I'm just saying that no matter how much you run, how much you try to avoid, how much you try to revise your past, your past is still a part of you, isn't it? It just tends to linger a little bit. Our, our tactics don't work. Our memory is too strong. We are still shaped by our past. You and I, no matter what tactics we try to employ, we can't seem to deal with our past completely. But well, watch this now. When Jesus enters in, he refuses to let us employ those ineffective tactics. And then he deals with our past on our behalf. And today I want you to see Jesus interact with a woman that is trying to run from, avoid, and even revise her past. And my prayer is that you will find that Jesus' tactics for dealing with her past 2,000 years ago can be just as effective for you today in dealing with your past. Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can use your device and just hop on. version is a great app to download, or you can just go to esvbible.org. It's a great uh, place to find the Scripture. Get it in front of you. You can look on with a neighbor. Even if they don't know, you can just... uh, you know, glance over as we go here, but I'd love for you to have the text in front of you. If, if you don't, that's okay. There's a scripture up here on the screen so you could track along with us. We're going to read the entire account of Jesus dealing with this woman's past from John chapter four. Here, pages kind of stop, stop turning here and, and we'll pick it up in verse one. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... Verse 3, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's the understatement of the year. We'll get there. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Very pragmatic. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered her, and you can just hear her voice draw, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They, that's the people, went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, there is a lot going on in that passage. We don't have time to cover everything. So what we're going to do is walk through the ways in which Jesus helps this woman deal with her past. So let's start with our woman. What do we know about her? Well, first, she's been married five times. Now, even in our modern day and age, when you need all fingers on one hand to count the number of marriages you've had, people sometimes look at you funny. I'm not saying it's irreparable. I'm not saying God can't restore it. I'm just saying that five marriages is, is more marriages than most folks. So rewind 2,000 years. Think of all the shame an embarrassment that would have been associated with the number of marriages that she's had. And, and the guy she's living with currently isn't her husband. I mean, this woman's got a past. It, the other thing uh, about this woman is that she's a Samaritan. You know, we've talked about this before, but just by way of review. About 750 years before Jesus was having this conversation, the nation of Israel was 12 united tribes. But those 12 united tribes split, 10 tribes in the north and 2 tribes in the, st- in the south that remained faithful to God's covenant. Well, the Assyrians came in and they conquered those 12 tribes, in the, or 10 tribes in the north, and began to intermarry and intermingle with those 10 tribes in the north, which would have been a, a big sin and a big no no, and everybody would look to those 10 tribes in the north like you're a bunch of punks, right? So here's what happened the offspring of those 10 tribes in the north intermarrying with the Assyrians were called Samaritans. And the two tribes in the south that were faithful to God's covenant would have looked at those offspring as subhuman, inferior half-breeds. To say that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans is most certainly the understatement of the year. They didn't even see them as human. Jews hated Samaritans so much. And I just found this out this week. For those of you who know that the nation of Israel uh, went back to Jerusalem under Nehemiah and Ezra after Babylonian captivity to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and do all that stuff. You know, the Samaritans came out of the woodwork and said, hey, we'll help for free. And the Jews said, nah, we don't need it. Imagine how much you've got to hate somebody. If you were building a house and they said, I'll help you for free. He said, nah, I don't need you. That's how much Jews hated Samaritans. This woman's past, her her, her culture and even her ethnicity were part of that past that she was so ashamed of. She would have been largely shaped by the hatred that happened between Jews and Samaritans. And and finally, her gender is part of her past. She she is a she. Now, it's different today and it's different in this culture, but 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine, women were second-class citizens. They were restricted to roles with little or no authority. They were considered inferior to men. They were allowed to observe but not participate in ceremonial activities. Even, even the rabbis at the time, that, that when they wrote their literature, they, they taught that women were not to be spoken to in the street. They're not to be instructed in the law. They're not to receive an inheritance. A, a woman actually had to walk six paces behind her husband and keep her head covered in public or she was considered a harlot. This woman, this Samaritan who's been married five times and is now living with a guy that isn't her husband, she's got a past, doesn't she? She comes in with some shame. She comes in with some baggage. Maybe there's somebody here that's got something in common in terms of a past with this Samaritan woman. Maybe you're not proud about your marital history. Maybe you're not proud about your previous marriage or even your previous marriages, plural. Maybe you've been made to feel inferior because of your lack of education or because of your gender or because of your ethnicity. Maybe you're not proud of the choices that you've made in the past or the level of success you've achieved in the past. And maybe you've tried running from your past or avoiding your past or revising your past. And our Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 tries all those tactics too. Let's watch her try tactic number one. Watch her try to run from her past. Look at verse 6. John tells us that Jacob's well was there in Sychar, so Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Here's what I want you to focus on. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, why does John tell us what time it is? It's because at it, this day and age that the Jewish day began at sunrise, So when John tells us that it's about the sixth hour, it's six hours after sunrise. So depending on what time the sun actually rose, what time of year it was, uh, we don't know exactly what time it is. What we do know is that it's right in the middle of the day, right in the middle of the day. Now, let me ask you this. If you personally had to draw water every day to, to give your livestock water for bathing, for cooking, for drinking, what time of day would you do that? First thing in the morning, right? Me too. You've got to get a day's supply of water. First thing you do is go get water. And and the first century was no different. That's when people drew water in the first century. First thing in the morning. But this woman comes to the well in the middle of the day. Why? Because she knew no one else would be there. She knew she'd be alone. She's running, isn't she? She's running. Now Now watch this. I love this. Watch Jesus pursue her. Watch Jesus pursue her. Look at verse 4. John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he was traveling from Judea in the north to Galilee in the south. Does everyone see that? That Jesus had to, he had to pass through Samaria? In a purely geographical sense, Jesus did not have to pass through Samaria. There were actually two routes that would take you from Judea in the north to Galilee in the south. So an Orthodox Jew typically would have taken the eastern route through Perea and and avoid Samaria altogether. And Jesus being a Jew, that's what would have been normal, comfortable, and expected for him. Jesus chose not to take that route. He actually took the route right through the middle of Samaria. Now, again, in a purely geographical sense, he did not have to go through Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria in a spiritual sense so that he could have this conversation. So so check it out. Check out what's happening here. Jesus steps out of what would have been normal and comfortable in order to pursue a woman that was running from her past. Jesus steps out of what's normal and comfortable in order to pursue a woman who's running from her past. And and you know this, that that Jesus does the same thing now. Do you know that? That even when you run, Jesus pursues. Even when we run away from him or run away from our past, Jesus pursues us in the midst of it. And you might wonder, like, how is God pursuing me? Well, for starters, you're in church right now, aren't you? You think that was an accident? You think that was purely your idea? Nope. That's God. Pursuing You. He has a plan for you. He has grace for you. He has redemption for you. He has a hope and a future for you. You being right here, right now, hearing this is God's design for you. He's pursuing you. Or what about that Christian you kind of coincidentally met at work? Or what about those life circumstances that coincidentally caused you to consider or reconsider spiritual things? Or what about that Christian neighbor that you coincidentally struck up a relationship with? You know know, the the word we use when when God is moving and we don't recognize it? It's coincidence. That's what's happening in your life. God's pursuing you. He's doing exactly what he did 2,000 years ago for this woman. He's stepping out of what's comfortable, stepping out of what's normal, stepping out of what might even be expected in order to pursue you even though you're running. And if you want to know the epitome of God's pursuit of you, The the apex, the climax, the brightest light of God stepping out of what's normal and comfortable and expected in order to pursue runners like you and me, look first to the manger and then to the cross. Even when we run, God pursues. What about the second tactic we talked about for, for dealing with your past? We try to avoid it, don't we? Again, this Samaritan woman tries the same thing. She tries the Russell Brand trick of you know, youthful hijinks and you know, general hijinks and youthful folly. She kind of dances and ducks and dodges and kind of does the bullfighter Olay thing through the whole passage. Go back and reread the passage this afternoon. And you'll see her use smoke and mirrors and talk about being spiritual and talk about her heritage. Any trick in the book to avoid the conversation that she really does not want to have about her past. But look what Jesus does in verse 16. Pick it up there. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Like, this is like the Jesus mic drop here, right? Just drops it on her, but he doesn't walk away. He stays with her. He brings her past to the forefront so that he can deal with it. It's fascinating to me that even after this statement, this woman continues to try to avoid the conversation and Olay. She looks at Jesus and she goes, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Fascinating. This man's never met you before, and he knows your entire marital history. Yeah, he's a prophet. Nice. Thank you, Sherlock, for telling us that. And then she kind of launches into this diatribe about worship. She's still dancing. She's still trying to duck and, jo- and dodge. But listen, the, the chapter right before this one, John chapter 3, tells us that Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. So no matter how much she tries to duck and dodge, he knows what's in her heart. He knows her past. He knows her present. He knows her future. So he's not going to let her off the hook. You know, the same goes for you and me. You know that Jesus knows what's in your heart. You know that he knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. And no matter how much we try to ole and duck and dodge and avoid, we might try to avoid it, but Jesus confronts it. Jesus confronts it. God is not a sweep it under the rug kind of God. He's not a let's just forget about it and move on kind of God. He's not a let's just act like it didn't happen kind of God. Rest assured that God is in the business of confronting your past head on. Now, that truth that Jesus confronts your past head on and knows your past would be disheartening at best and terrifying at worst if, if we didn't have this final concept. Here's the final concept. We revise, but Jesus replaces. We revise, but Jesus replaces. Look, look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ. I want you to stop there and understand what's happening here. Recall how our woman entered into the conversation. So ashamed of her past that she came to the well to draw water at a very inconvenient time, just so she wouldn't have to face anybody. She started the conversation running away from people. What's she doing now? She's running into town. She's running toward people. Because once she had a real encounter with the living God, and check this out, when, when she starts talking about Messiah and Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, those words he's using there is I am who I am. Ego me in the Greek, and it's the same, uh, it's different in Hebrew, but it's the same thing. He's saying, I am God. I am here. I am Emmanuel. God with us. God here with you. And once she had a personal encounter with the living God, all of a sudden her past didn't matter anymore. All of a sudden she's free of that past and, and, and it's free of her shame. So much so that she runs toward people, not away from them. Suddenly she's okay with who she is. Suddenly she doesn't have to be afraid or ashamed anymore and it gets better it gets better look what happens in verse 30 it says uh, that people went out of the town and were coming to Jesus so not only did Jesus redeem her now she's able to join Jesus in his earthly mission And think about this, like God just, he's not a God that like stops at like, wow, that was amazing. He's not, he's not a God that stops there. He moves it to like unfathomable, to unimaginable, to how in the world could you have rewritten her story? She tried to revise it and duck it and dodge it and avoid it, whatever. And you've completely rewritten her story. You know why? Because 2000 years later, we're sitting here on a Sunday morning reading her story. We're not reading about her shame. We're not reading about her, she's a harlot. She's had five husbands, everything. We're reading about a transforming story of God's amazing grace. All her attempts to revise her past had failed. But when Jesus entered in, he rewrote her whole story in a moment and replaced her ugly past with the brightest future imaginable. We try to revise it. Jesus simply replaces it. This woman came in a harlot. She left a hero. She came in a coward and she left courageous. Her past once crippled her. And now she's running to tell others about Jesus. She was once afraid. And now she's full of joy and freedom. Why? Because she experienced exactly what the Apostle Paul would write about 30 years later. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and the new has come. In other words, here's what this means for you and me. In Christ, your past is truly in the past. Check that out. That ought to be freeing for us this morning. In Christ, your past is truly in the past. It was true for this woman, and it can be true for you. Because Jesus doesn't duck it and dodge it and sweep it under the rug. He confronts it head on. And then at the cross and at the empty tomb, he rewrites your story with a story of redemption and hope. And for that reason, no matter what you've got in the past, no matter what skeleton you've got in the closet, it's gone. It's in the past. Your sin is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. It's remembered no more. You go to God and say, remember that time I sinned? And God goes, I don't remember that. Your past is in the past as far as I'm concerned. I've got a good friend that um, that's really lived this out in front of me. Uh, just like the woman in John chapter 4, just like so many biblical characters, uh, a, a really close uh, personal friend. His name is, is Rustin. Uh, I've known Rustin since he was in the fourth grade. Uh, he is no longer in the fourth grade. He is thirty. Something. I shouldn't tell you. He'll get mad if he's watching the video. Um, Rustin, towards the end of high school and into college, uh, started to drink a little bit, started to drink a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And then he got married uh, to a great gal named Jamie. And uh, throughout the course of the first few years of his marriage, Rustin just became a full-blown addict to alcohol and his addiction to alcohol and his abuse of that substance led him to be unfaithful to his wife he cheated on his wife and uh, at that moment he had just kind of come unraveled and his past had kind of caught up with them and no matter how much he tried to duck it and dodge it and avoid it there it was on the forefront and god began to confront his past so he came to his wife and he said look here's what happened Um, i am just completely dependent upon alcohol And she said, yes, I know. (laughs) I'm married to you. And he said, and it led me to be unfaithful to you. And he said, look, I don't blame you. If you want to walk away, it would probably be easier if you did. Uh, His wife responded something like this. It's a paraphrase. I've been praying about this for a long time, and I'm ready for God to restore and heal our marriage. So God began to do that. God began to do that through some mentors and counselors and friends. I I was privileged uh, to be a part of that conversation and a part of that story. I'm just glad I didn't mess it up. And they went to professional counseling and they worked through things and they were in church every Sunday and they had a small group of people come around them and you could see day by day, week by week, month by month, God rewriting their story. All Rustin's efforts to revise it had not worked, but God began to rewrite their story and he rewrote it in such a way that, that, that you, you and I may not even, even have thought of this. Like, just the fact that their marriage is restored and Rustin is sober is, is a spectacular ending. Is it not? I mean, that's just an unbelievable thing that God has done. But remember, God doesn't stop it. Wow. God stops it. I never would have thought of that. Here's what I never would have thought of. They've got two kids now. They're beautiful. Little girl, Marley. What's their little boy's name? McCoy. It's a weird name. I don't need to remember that. McCoy. And he's my friend, right? Then Rustin, then Rustin after, after his marriage kind of uh, was, was healing and restored over the course of three or four years, he thought, you know what? I, can, I think I'd kind of like to go to seminary. I think I'd kind of like to go get a, a, an education in theology. And then he did that. And, and then he began to intern in ministry at my previous church, Scottsdale Bible Church. And God began to use his past to demonstrate God's glory, not Rustin's glory. And he began to rewrite his story and to use Rustin to tell others about Jesus, just like he used the woman in John chapter four to tell others about Jesus. And my last Sunday at my previous church, Scottsdale Bible Church, I laid my hands on my friend Rustin and commissioned him as the brand new pastor at the campus that I started at Scottsdale Bible Church. Now he's shepherding seven, 800 people and helping them understand that their past is in the past in Christ. And he can speak to it personally he tried to duck and dodge he tried to avoid he tried to revise but God entered in just like he did for the woman in John 4 and dealt with Rustin's past head-on and he can do the same for you he didn't revise the story he rewrote the story same goes for you what's ahead of you is God's bright future for you no more ducking and dodging no more avoiding God can face your past head-on deal with it completely make you new and give you a hope and a future Now, all of that is well and good, but this series is called Questions, isn't it? It's called Questions if you've been journeying with us over the last couple weeks. And so we've yet to ask or answer our question for this morning. So here's our question for this morning. If I have a past, can I still become a Christian? If I have a past can I still become a Christian? And, and based on what we've just been talking about for the last 35 minutes or so, you should be able to answer this question on your own. But I, I want to answer it even more for you and unpack it just a little bit more. So the implication is here that I have, I have too much of a past. I've been, I've been too naughty I've been too sinful. I've done too much. God can't forgive me. And my past is going to be preventative in terms of walking with Jesus in a meaningful way. And this question, it implies that you are not a Christian yet. You've not said yes to Jesus yet. If I have a past, is it going to prevent me from doing that? Now, there are some people who who are kind of superficially familiar with the Bible who might look at you and tell you, absolutely not, your past is not preventative. You can still become a Christian. God will forgive you. And that's true, but only in part. Over and over in the Scripture, those who refuse to admit their need for God, those who refuse to admit their sin, those who refuse to admit that they have a past, never find Jesus the rich young ruler is a great example he thought he had a flawless past didn't he but he has this encounter with Jesus and he goes away sad why it wasn't his past that prevented him from coming to Jesus it was his refusal to admit that he actually had a past but for those who come to Jesus and say oh I've got a past I was a prostitute. I was a thief. I was an arrogant legalist. Oh, yeah, I've got a past. And they come and just give it to God and surrender it to Him. They find Jesus. The same guy who wrote John, the book of John, wrote a couple of letters that are included later in the Bible. In one of those letters, he writes this He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Can I just, I want to reread that and I'm going to put it in the language that we're using today. Listen close. If we say we have no past, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our past, he's faithful and just to forgive us our past and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no past... We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, the answer to the question, if I have a past, can I still become a Christian, is this. A past is not preventative. A past is a prerequisite. (laughs) Having a past is a prerequisite for becoming a Christian. Confessing that you've got a past, that you've got sin, that you've got some ugliness back there, that is the first step in a journey of faith with Jesus. For those who come to Jesus and go, hey, you know what? I'm kind of cool. Like the rich young ruler said, I've obeyed all those things since I was a kid. Jesus goes, well, you've got your own story, and it doesn't need any revising at all. It doesn't need any rewriting at all. You just keep writing your own story. But for those of us who come to him and say, Jesus, I've got a past, buddy. You know it. You were there. You saw it. I need you. For those, for those, God restores and redeems That's an amazing God. Not just a God that says, oh, you know, your past isn't preventative, but I can actually use your past. Having a past is a prerequisite for coming to me. Confessing that is a prerequisite for coming to me. And not only am I going to change you, redeem you, rewrite your story, but now I'm going to use you and your past. Look at that. Just like I did for the woman in John chapter 4, for the sake of my glory, and for the kingdom of God. Please we'll let that sink in for a minute. Just let it sink just for a minute. I think we start talking about our past on a Sunday morning, and you know, I can't go through each one of you, and you know, let's, let's go watch the video of your past, but you can play that video in your mind, can't you? You can look back, You know where you were, what you did, what you said. And so does Jesus. Let him come alongside you this morning and say, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I can redeem and restore and use you and your past, if you'll confess it, to do something eternal and glorious and miraculous and beyond what we could have asked or imagined. That's amazing grace. I've asked the band this morning, worship team, to come back up and lead us in one more song. Actually, two. They're going to do two, but, but the one that they're going to do to start with just talks about this stillness that we have now that we don't have to fear our past, now that we don't have to wonder if God's just swept it under the rug. He's dealt with it head on, and he's restoring and redeeming and making us new every day. As we respond to the preaching of God's word, I would invite you to stand, join your voices with us and sing and praise the God who has rewritten your story. Let's stand and sing together.